Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number eight. I am your host, Stephen Oakey. Today's episode brings a conversation between our own Mike Avery and Colby Dickinson of Loyola University, Chicago. They had the opportunity to talk about the importance of literature for theology, what makes a great professor, and how attending to the requests of students can lead to new and unexpected courses. Please let us know what you think in the comments on iTunes or on the blog, and thank you so much for listening. Welcome to another Daily Theology Podcast. Today our guest is Dr. Colby Dickinson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's Tuesday after Memorial Day. It's kind of rainy, but also sunny. A little tension out there. A lot of things happened over the weekend. Oscar Romero was beatified. Ireland voted for gay marriage. Texas is flooded where I'm from, which is really sad. It's tough to see. Uh, and oddly enough, as just from a sports tidbit, the University of Denver won the national championship for lacrosse. It's the first team west of the Mason-Dixon line to ever win the championship. Just FYI. I had no idea. <laughs> so a little bit of some facts and stuff there today. One of the things that I'm really excited about is that we both have a common friend from the Netherlands. Marion is, is who I call him. He's he always made me feel like I was underdressed for everything and I always felt like I'd need to drink more wine. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you share that sentiment, but like I always, I think that's very common when you, when you live in Europe as an American, you always feel you're underdressed. <laughs> so anyways, he's a, he's a real hoot and I'm glad that he got us involved. Oh, great. So you're a uh, assistant professor of theology and director of majors and minors at Loyola university of Chicago. One of the things that we're really interested in knowing is what was the path that led you to theology? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. Very excited to answer your questions. As far as why I started to do theology, I, I don't know as if I have a good answer. And I think when I started to think about it, I, I stretched my own mind to come up with stories and images. But I do have several points that perhaps circulate around the question. And one of those is that, you know, I was raised as the son of a Methodist minister. And so every Sunday I'm in church every week, multiple times I'm in church and I'm seeing not just a minister give, you know, a homily. I'm watching my father get up and give a homily. And then I'm going home and seeing other sides, you know, I won't say good or bad, but obviously both at times. And I'm seeing other sides to the message. And I'm thinking to myself, what does this mean? How do I understand you know, just take something like the love of Christ, whatever that is. How do I understand that in the context of what I'm hearing in in the domain of my family, in my own home, and what I see up in the pulpit every Sunday? And I think that really began, for me, the process of self-critique, of looking at the church, my life, and saying, this, what I see isn't all there is. There's more. And this led to sort of a, a beginning of interest in what for me now is political theology how can we be self-critical of the structures of the church etc so so you were entrenched right in your family at what age did you start to be self-critical oh that's a good i mean it's a slow process it's uh, you know at points in high school at points in college at points in grad school you know you, i'm constantly reevaluating. but i would say i would say for the most part it, it began very young very very young i remember being very little and hearing hearing someone say something about, uh, and I don't know the context, but something about, well, you know, if you're a Christian, that means on Sundays you love, you love all of the Christians and all of humanity as if you were one or you know, there's a communion in, in Christ, et cetera. And then someone else got in my head saying, well, but if you're called to go to war and to fight, just like in World War II, which is this idealized image of, <laughs> of bravery, if you're called to go do that on, you know, on Monday, you have to go out there and shoot someone. I said, well, what if they're a Christian too? Well, it doesn't matter. And I remember that conflict, which perhaps registers in some people's minds in different ways. For me, it, it really set in and I thought, this doesn't make sense. How am I supposed to be united you know, and one with my fellow brother or sister on Sunday, but then on Monday I may have to shoot them? And it, it made no sense to me. And I think that very question, which stuck in my mind at a very young age, was one of many moments where I started thinking there's there's more that I'm being I guess called I don't know more that I'm being led to reflect on how did your dad respond to that question in particular to <laughs> to your to your this questioning I can imagine a young young Colby come at me like this doesn't make any sense or like this or like <laughs> does your did your dad who you know is a pastor 
did what, what did he how did he respond well i think that's a, that's that's an ongoing process as well ah, you know okay. it's one of those things that sometimes we don't talk about as much as we should but i think i think for the most part his reactions have been good he too challenges and pushes boundaries of things you know it's always hard though for for family members i think who are involved in theology to have discussions that don't immediately go to personal elements as well you know there's always that dimension too and sometimes that can be tricky to talk about right there's always seems to be a bit of a conflict i I agree with that you know one of the things i will say it's i used to say this is kind of a joke but when people would now that i'm catholic people would say well how do you feel about the celibacy of priests and part of part of my my joke response was to say well you know, being raised by a minister, not always such a bad idea to not have them, to let, to not let them have kids, <laughs> which sounds terribly harsh, but it's a joke. But it's just I'm trying to point out the way of, well, you you can see the other side. You know, there are difficulties in hearing things. So, Absolutely. Yeah. When did you convert? This would have been I want to say sometime around 2006 or 2007. I was I was teaching at an all girls Catholic high school uh, in St. Louis where I taught for six years, mm-hmm. and during my time there, I sort of was very intrigued by the Catholic faith and eventually started wandering toward it. Both, both my wife and I did actually at the same time. What I mean, is there anything in particular that was intriguing that? Yeah. You know, I, I teach, I teach a course and I'm doing a research project right now on, on the idea of theology as a form of autobiography. And that's a hard thing to get your head around. But one of the things that I, I really and deliberately look at is the idea of theology and, and and more so, more directly, faith as relationship. And people will ask me, why did you become Catholic? And the first answer I usually give is to say, it was the people I knew. I knew these great people that I respected them. I respected the lives they lived. And I wanted to be more like them in a way. And so it wasn't this great, you know, at first at least, it wasn't great theological points or an experience of the Catholic Church. It was really, I knew some really cool Catholics. And I enjoyed them. And I thought to myself, I, I, I like the way they, they appear very balanced about their faith and their spirituality. And I would like to be more in relationship with them, and, but with myself in life in that way. And so that for me was the big push. I knew some cool people. <laughs> Were you struggling with the Methodist faith as well? Well, I had a deep and still do have a very deep respect, not only for the United Methodist Church, but for many different Protestant groups and for the spirituality that they foster. But for me personally, the spirituality that I was inclined toward was one that I saw deeply resonated in the experiences in the history of the Catholic church. You know, the respect for silence, the idea of spiritual direction, Hmm. the need to take a retreat, maybe also in silence. Uh, and, and just literally just, it seemed like hundreds of different spiritualities that were sometimes were in tension with each other. You know, a Carmelite spirituality is not the same as a a Jesuit, you know, Ignatian spirituality and on and on. But I began to see that diversity and the allowance of that diversity in terms of one's personal spiritual development as a very major factor in how I wanted to approach the, I would say the formation of my own spirituality. And that was something I, to be honest, I was clueless about being raised in the the traditions I was raised in. I think a lot of, I don't want to, I certainly don't want to mean any, (laughs) you know, Protestantism of the whole, et cetera. I don't want to do it at all. But I think there's a tendency or a temptation on the part of some Protestant groups. Certainly I felt this in the church I was raised in to say, if I don't like this experience, I'm just going to find a different, (laughs) I'm going to find a different church where I align my views of anything, you know, spirituality, morality, where I align more closely. But the, the temptation in Catholicism is very, very different, and it doesn't work that way. And I preferred the idea of I'm going to find the diversity, not by leaving the church, but within the church. And that spoke to me, I think, very heavily. Wow. So let's backtrack a little bit. You went to Truman State, and your first love was literature. So can you tell me yes. a little bit more about that? <clears throat> well, I got to, at, at the time, it was actually uh, Northeast Missouri State University. And Good after to know. Two years of being there, they had a name change. Everyone thought I switched schools. and no, I didn't. <laughs> But I went there in my freshman year, first semester, I had a class on literature, world literature, from the resident poet there. I think Jim Barnes was his name. And I was very deeply moved by the class and by studying the classics. You know, we were reading Homer and we were reading the Aeneid and Dante, etc. And I remember thinking, this is so much more interesting than any other class I have. And to be honest, literature, because that was my main focus was literature. Literature was my hardest subject for me. I did the worst in it in, in secondary school. 
But I think because of that, I was very driven to figure out what's going on in this language, this discourse that is so meaningful and involved in the creation of meaning in people's lives that I'm not getting, but I, I really desperately want to get. And I think in a sense, doing theology or really doing philosophy for me are just extensions of the exact same desire. I wanted to go deeper into those things that at first didn't make sense to me because literature was an absolute bafflement and still is in many ways too. And so is poetry. But I really want to understand that more. I find that that struggle more worthwhile for me and ultimately redeeming than the study of many other subjects. Mm. So so I really, I got passionately caught up in all of it. I right. feel like anything I was reading was... was Here's the, I mean, it just I had an interesting thought just now. Do you think, would you tell your students they should they should take a literature course or they should, before they get just deep into theology or religious studies or even parts of philosophy, perhaps literature should be first. Well, I think it certainly can be. This is where I feel like I should pull my wife in from the other room. She, she teaches literature at Loyola and uh, even a course on religion literature. I definitely think for some people that the approach based on their personality needs to go through different mediums to make more sense to them. So I do think you need students just not just students of people who need to go through the fiction and the narratives that fiction weaves in order to make sense of what they encounter in something like a religious faith, just like you need people who need to go through poetry in order to encounter it, or you need some people they need to go through philosophy to encounter it. Maybe some of it's personality based, but I think it certainly is a rewarding and redeeming exercise to learn about the creation of meaning and not just in the, the sciences, but to learn about the creation of meaning in various subjects in the humanities before they can go forward to find how that connects to what theology can be or perhaps should be. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when did you decide I want to go to graduate school for theology? I think I always knew that I wanted to go do that. And I went to a state school and so I, they didn't have theology obviously. And in the back of my mind, I thought, well, you know, I had been told by my dad and others that you don't have to have a undergrad in theology to study theology at the master's level. So I thought, okay, well, it's great. It's a freebie. I can go do college and study whatever I want. Right. I, still don't, I don't know why that is. I, that's <laughs> totally bizarre, but that's totally it's, true. It's very bizarre. It's very true. And when I went to Duke, I discovered, you know, a lot of, oh, it's even most of the students there had, had never studied theology before, but were passionately committed to wanting to do something in the church. So the school felt it had an obligation, you know, to, to serve these students. And that's great. That's fine. But of course, it means that diversity of background translates into first-year courses that are are somewhat on the undergrad level in some ways too. Why Which, Why Duke? I went there because it was a Methodist school. Okay, and because I also love the basketball team. <laughs> hey, that <laughs> that so all it, factors into it. It factors. Right? In. So I had uh, season tickets for two years when I was there. It was fantastic. But I, but I want to say too, one of the reasons I I knew that I was going to go into theology. I remember thinking to myself when I was younger, if this is supposed to be the most important thing in a person's life, faith, religion, something along those lines, it would not be a waste of my time to go spend a couple of years figuring it out more, what it means to me. And that, maybe that sounds idealistic. I think it is idealistic, but I think that in and of itself was enough for me to say that justifies wanting to go do this. And I think once I got sucked into that, and, you know, just I kept going. I kept saying it's more and more interesting to me. Would you use the word vocation when you you talk about this this going forward in a way? I would now, but I wouldn't have then. Uh, okay. Um, I I think my path toward discerning vocation has been a um a long and slow one that's <laughs> never finished for me. I mean, it's an ongoing. Thing welcome, for me. welcome to the party. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's a fr that's a fresh way to t take a look at it. I I look at it a little bit like, you know, when I read uh, Henri Nouwen and he writes about the idea of an ongoing conversion for him, even though he already is a priest, he already had finished his PhD and he'd done these things that he knew he needed to do. You know, then he went and lived in the Brie community with people with disabilities and he was continuing to discover his vocation. wasn't always exactly what he thought it was and there was more to it that he needed to unpack. And I think it's very similar to how I would describe, you know, I knew I needed to study more in depth uh, issues of theology and philosophy and for personal edification, I guess, but I knew there was more and I'm still trying to always, you know, feel that out. What is that more that I need to be in touch with? Well, speaking of ongoing vocation and figuring it out, you took like a very different turn after Duke. You taught high school for a while as well as uh, got an MA in religious education. So why not go straight forward to more academics, 
Well, at the time, <clears throat> I was so disillusioned with academia uh, after leaving Duke. <laughs> Can you explain just a little bit? You don't have to go too much into it. But. No, it's fine. I had some experiences with other grad with grad students and mainly PhD students at Duke that I just thought if this is the way that this is done, if this is what it means to be in PhD programs, I I want nothing to do with this. And that was very it was very heartbreaking to go through that realization. Is it just like competitiveness or like Oh, very much so, yes. Okay, so it's so not true friendship or like it's Well, I I'm sure it probably existed on levels I never saw, but as a master's student there I, I just was thoroughly disillusioned by it and I thought you know, and I had a, I had a doctoral student there tell me, you know, uh, your work is not going to be good enough to make it to the PhD level. And I thought, well, I, dis- I disagree, but <laughs> there, I thoroughly disagree, but I was really, you know, disheartened by it. And I found out incidentally, he never finished his PhD anyway, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I did. So, I, no, but, but it was very disillusioned. I'm sorry you had to go through that. I, I, I mean, that's, I think that's a normal occurrence and just in, you know, academics sometimes in general. So you decided to go into high school. Was that initially what you wanted to do or did you? Well, no, I was just looking for a job. I mean, I was looking for a job because I was re-engaging a relationship that eventually led to a marriage right. <laughs> with someone who knew they, they wanted to be in St. Louis at that time doing things for the development of their career. And so I was just looking for a job in the area and happened to fall into that position. Great. So tell us some of your experiences as a high school teacher. Oh, it was great. (laughs) The experience was wonderful. I mean, it was wonderful for me because when you teach high school, you get to interact with the students on a daily basis in such a way as to see the intricacies of their lives, you know, and that ranges through everything, dating, you're joking with them about life, you're, you're, you know, you're going to parties with them, you're doing silly, ludicrous things, and I excel at that. (laughs) So for me, you know, I was having all kinds of games and events with students we were i was in charge of the senior class and we threw parties all the time and we just you know fundraisers and had a blast so for me that was a wonderful environment to be engaged with student learning at multiple levels i i love teaching the bible which is what i taught there primarily old testament and new testament i love doing that and i found that at the time i was also doing a master's at uh, st louis university and i was learning more about biblical studies there from great people Dr. Ben Asen was one of them, and and just really immersing myself in the study of the Bible, which I thought was such an essential piece to where I am now, even though some people would say I don't do anything with the Bible now, but no, it was really, really formative for me. And translating that into a context of a high schooler's life in America is not an easy thing to do, and so I loved and embraced that challenge. But at the same time, I think, you know, I, I knew, and especially toward the end, I knew that I wanted more intellectual engagement than I could get you know, at the high school level. And so I wanted to go back to school and pursue more. Was that a hard transition to get back into academia and just apply and kind of get out of your rhythm as a teacher? I think it was in some ways at first, but I had been spending most of my free time while I was teaching high school. I was reading all kinds of things that were just, you know, very dense works. And I kept it up with different philosophers and, and theologians so that I was almost chomping at the bit to get back in it you know when I launched back into studies after six years of teaching high school I went you know in there and I went to Leuven people were I think some people in my classmates were like wow he's really eager to (laughs) to dive into this and and I was I was very very eager to to read more but also to begin writing and reflecting on my thoughts in a different more organized systematic way so why why international why Leuven I had I had several thoughts on the subject and several reasons then one of them was that you know uh, my wife and I had always wanted to go live in Europe if possible we thought that would be a great opportunity to do so another piece was just simply I was very intrigued by continental philosophy prior to this and I you know throughout all my master's work actually even in undergrad and so I thought it'd be really unique to go to a school that has such a rich deep history in continental thought so much so that they, it's the language they speak. I mean, it just, it flows through everything they do. I would love to be immersed in that. And I was not proved wrong in that. I remember taking a, a course that I felt I was for, the only course I was forced to take really was this course on pastoral theology. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is not my field and my interest. <laughs> so I, I got in there and the, the priest who taught it, who was also a professor there, wonderful man. He says, you know, we walk in, he says, okay, so this semester we're going to be doing a very close reading of Paul Ricoeur's The Symbolism of Evil. That's a pastoral that, book. That's a pastoral that, book. That's not a real, that's not a real story. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how they do things in Leuven. 
you know everything is steeped in that. So you know if you're in a, if you take an ethics a, a theological ethics class, it's yeah. it's you're going to hear Levinas. If you take a pastoral course, Paul Ricoeur comes up. If you take a systematics class, well, then it's a free-for-all of wonderful, wonderful <laughs> continental <laughs> Of course, thinkers. yeah, of course systematics is a free-for-all. I love yeah. that. Do you think it, the, the way they do theology at Leuven, am I saying that right, Leuven? Or you, is it Leuven? You, you, can say, you can say Leuven if you're a Dutch speaker, and you can say Leuven if you're French, and this is somewhat contentious with the people there because for centuries, in fact, French was the language of education. Uh, and so if you went to the university, you, you called it Louvain. But then in 1968 and 69, with the student uprisings, you know, in Paris and the States, mm. uh, the students in, in Belgium stood up and said, well, you know what? Leuven is the actual name of the town. and It's a Dutch speaking region. We want the French people out of here. So <laughs> in typical Belgian style, they divided the university in half. In fact, they split everything in half. They split even the library, A to I think A to L went to one school and M through Z went to the other what? and they formed a new university at Louvain la Neuve, the new Louvain, <laughs> which is about 20 kilometers away. It's an artificial town. And then Leuven with the traditional buildings and the old heritage, uh, they stayed right there, but everything was now in Dutch. But then within two years, I think that is, that is very Belgian. You're very totally Belgian. right. But within two years, they, they realized, look, we're, you know, we were able to compete internationally with, French in publications ah. and such, but we can't compete internationally with Dutch. No one reads it. So they immediately, within two years, I think they switched uh, to having some of the programs in English. So <laughs> they went internationally English. One of the questions I have while you were at Louvain, you have quite a number of degrees, and this is from the STL to STB, PhD. It seems quite rare or like even like unique just from an American's per- perspective, because most people just get the PhD. Why so many degrees? You say rare. Maybe the word is ludicrous. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a bit over t- over the top. Uh, one, what they do, you know, Leuven is a, one of the schools in the world that can offer the pontifical degrees, which is fantastic. Uh, and for some people, that's a really harrowing, you know, extending experience of many, right. many more classes over many more years. But because I, in my undergrad years, I had a lot of, a lot of classical language training, Latin, Greek, and I did some Hebrew later in Great. grad school. And because I had, coincidentally, a lot of classes that happened to be ones you need for the pontifical degrees, it turned out not to be a huge addition of coursework in order to get those degrees. It was more of a formality in some ways. Okay. So, But I did take extra courses. Um, but I ended up just saying, well, if it's not too much you know, more to do this, sure, I'll go ahead and do it while I'm here. When will this opportunity come up again? <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. I just sort of fell into that. But it, I hope it looks impressive because... <laughs> Oh, it's it wasn't. It's the it wasn't like I was. I wasn't trying to be impressive. With it. I was looking at your education on your CV. Oh, it's the f- whole first page. <laughs> like, it's just man. I was like, counting. Uh, yeah, Luda- no, I love ludicrous this. is the word. No, I mean, <laughs> I also feel like one of those people who can say very sincerely that the more I know of these things, I, you know, I had, I think I have three master's degrees or something. The more I would learn, the more I would know, uh, the more I would realize I have no idea what's going on with this <laughs> with theology. You know, what's what's really being said here. But also, I, I felt like there's such a limited awareness sometimes as a student to the way in which, you know, to understanding the ways in which theology could be presented differently. I mean, the ways in which I studied theology at Duke were just radically different than what I got at, at St. Louis University and radically different in Leuven. And I'm sure there are many more schools where it would be completely different again. And as a student, you, you don't know that. You know, you don't realize you're getting a certain theology that's presented by that school. And I think that's one of the reasons I really appreciated the, the variety of education that I had because I had no idea unless I was doing a comparison between different schools. And mm-hmm. I sort of got that, you know, not intentionally, but I got that. <laughs> and the reason I did the master's at St. Louis University was just simply because it was free. My high school in the archdiocese and SLU paid for it. So I said, why not? Nah, why not? One of the questions I wanted to ask, why does continental philosophy matter? Well, you know, this, to, to my mind, this goes back to the question you asked about why literature matters and why it would be a good forerunner to doing theology. Continental thought, and this goes far beyond just simply philosophy or theology, but continental thought is, is very comfortable flying in between different genres uh, in the humanities. So it's very possible to find uh, an author, you know, probably a more well-respected author in the field, of continental thought, who is reading and writing about a certain novelist, and then they're reading and writing about a certain poet, and then they're talking about theories of history as debated by historians, 
and then they're discussing maybe a certain economic theory and then they're talking and they're very steeped in uh, you know philosophy and the history of philosophy and then they're talking about different essayists and then they're talking about you know theologians and for me continental thought tries to bridge a lot of those gaps that a lot of us these days are trying to separate and i don't see those separations i, I don't i certainly don't respect them but i don't even see them sometimes where others would institute them and so to my mind continental thought was fantastic because here are thinkers writing who are just traipsing all over every border uh, and that to me was fantastic i wrote a brief essay in one of the uh, the postmodern saints of france about the novelist the french novelist jean genet you know and jean genet's work is fabulous but so is uh, jean paul sartre's you know very lengthy study of genet's novels and i thought this is just great to see someone with the stature of you know jean paul sartre writing and he of course he himself wrote uh, novels he wrote philosophy he wrote critical analysis of, of novels he wrote about politics and contemporary events and that to me is a very important piece to what i want to do in my own work does continental philosophy have a pastoral angle at all i was trying to think of you know it can be really idea-driven theory much more like entrenched in philosophical thought obviously do you think there's any any room for a pastoral bent to it yeah certainly i i think the way in which i would see the way in which i would see pastoral applications is perhaps a bit different than others would see it as i mentioned before you know when i went to leuven and the pastoral theology course I had to take was simply a close reading of Paul Ricoeur's Symbolism of Evil. Mm. That made sense to me. It made sense to me as a pastoral approach. Having myself, I actually worked in churches when I was in grad school, and I served as a pastor for one year before I taught high school. And having done that, I mean, I'm not unfamiliar with what it means to be pastoral in moments. And I think I appreciate when what you're reading to prepare you for those pastoral moments actually has meat to it, you know, and allows you to, to understand some of the depth of what you may encounter. So reading record and then going to do a pastoral duty of some kind makes sense to me. And I, I continue to feel that way. If I want to read something that has pastoral impact, I'm going to read poetry. I'm going to read, <laughs> you know, a, right. a dense philosopher perhaps, but to me it will have an applicability. Fantastic. You say it's rare that continental philosophy and as well as theology are kind of mixed together. I, why do you, why is it so rare? Cause I, I'm wondering like through many programs in the United States, we focus more on like Aquinas and Augustine, Rahner. Those are kind of more of the systematicians, just to name a few, obviously there's more. Why do you think continental philosophy is, is not as popular, I guess, in the States? And, and maybe I'm in the wrong for saying that. I just seems like kind of philosophy you said it's like it's a rare to have like a department that can do both i think in some ways it is i mean and i'm speaking about contemporary continental thought for right. the most part I, I i think my first guess would be something along the lines of because we tend in the states to specialize to such a degree in realms that are very traditional like we say we someone's an ecclesiologist and someone else is doing pastoral theology and someone else is doing uh, ethics from a very you know maybe sexual ethics or environmental ethics and these aren't necessarily things that in the States we connect in our grad programs with continental thought. Some places do do that. And some, I think some professors who are working in these, these fields do want to bring it to students' attention, but it's not always something that, you know, inevitably comes to the mind of a theologian. So though in places like Leuven, it's done very frequently uh, in the States, it's not so much the language that they would use. We have much more, you know, in America, we have pragmatic traditions. We have, you know, <laughs> very specific uh, alignments of theology that really aren't, uh, they're not, it's not necessary that they have a conversation with continental thought. And so I think a, a lot of programs just don't even think of that as something they need. We're more focused on, you know, I'm going to do liberation theology. I'm right. going to do, you know, black theology or Latino, Latina, or, you know. You're known for my experience as someone of being a publishing machine. Those are my words from my my friends who I've asked about you. <laughs> okay. And even I noticed that you did a graduate caucus on the spirituality of writing. So I wanted to ask, how does one write theology well and with such consistency? Ooh. Well, that's, okay, so that, that's a different question than normally. Normally when you say publishing machine, someone wants to ask, uh, how do you publish so much? But how do you do it well and with consistency? Um, it's difficult. And I'm not saying I do it. I, 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 no, I, it's so difficult that I feel like I don't do it. 
But I think one of the things that's helpful, and this ties into the spirituality of publishing, I was talking about trying to formulate my thoughts on what they could even be. I would put along the lines of something like this, that for me, writing becomes an act, not only of getting to know yourself and your positions and what you feel or what you think about a particular subject, but it's also a form of developing how you stand in relation to, I would almost want to say virtues and vices, <laughs> as bizarre as that may sound. I think one of the biggest problems I see with some writers is that they get so hung up on the idea of perfection that it becomes a stumbling block they can't write. They, they, they want to write something that is perfect, and they want to do it instantly. And I think that idea comes more from a, you know, a capitalist market or an American system. So one of the things I want to say is we have to get in touch with the failure of our words, which is the failure of our representations. And How do you do that? I think by, by immediately going into an idea and interrogating it and saying, I put down this sentence, which is just a fragment. Maybe it's just a fragment of a sentence. But that seems to capture, to my mind, something of what I'm trying to articulate. And then I'm going to interrogate it. I'm going to ask questions of it and say, why, you know, why did I say this? And what does this mean? And if I can begin to formulate those questions even as other sentences, maybe I begin to formulate a paragraph that is asking a question about what's really going on with that fragment of thought. And then I want to try to connect that to maybe someone else who's worked on that question or a few other authors who've written about it or, or a connection I see that no one else maybe has seen or at least not written about. And then I start to slowly build something. And I'm never thinking, is this perfect? No, in fact, I have file after file of worthless writing <laughs> you know, things, that, <laughs> things that should never be seen perhaps, perhaps. files and files of worthless writing oh I just love terrible that. stuff and i think part of what i have to be willing to do is to say no matter what i write am i willing to take this thing that i've written and just chuck it and be done and say it's it's garbage i don't need to go forward with this and i think we fear writing something that could be seen that way but i think instead of saying i fear it you have to play with it and you know one of the comparisons i make as far as in academia is to something like carpentry or uh, a potter. Hmm. You're going to say to them, what have you been doing this last year? And they're going to say, well, I've made these pieces. And they can clearly say, well, this piece over here didn't really work out. Just this bench I was trying to make, uh, it didn't quite work out the way I wanted, but you know, it was helpful. I learned a couple technique bits and I learned to use a lathe in a different way or whatever, whatever. And I think as writers, as academics, we have to be willing to do that to say, this piece I wrote, this isn't the best thing, but I needed to do it because I need to work through a few ideas and uh, I'm write something else where I work through a few more. And, uh, so so like somewhat of killing the ego a bit you know, in such a way where don't be afraid to, to write something that might not be a wonderful piece or it, yes. it might even be terrible. Like, yeah, like yes, <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so. I think we have to be more than willing to do it. We have to actually, I would say more than just willing to do it, we have to be actively seeking it out. I have to actively seek out almost writing garbage at times and say, I'm willing to critique it and say, this wasn't a great piece, but I never intended for it to be great. I think it's great wisdom for any young professor or anyone, any, even in a graduate program who's struggling to even find their voice. I want to move on to teaching. One of the questions I asked, and I think it's a really great question. What makes a great teacher? What makes a great professor? Well, that's a very good question. I, my first response is just to say someone who's passionate about what it is that they're teaching. You know, I've, I remember when I taught high school, we had a, they were doing a job interview one time for a math teacher, and they had these three candidates, and two of them had really good degrees. And then when they talked to them about math, they said, yeah, they seem to know what they're doing, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they had, they had teaching degrees. Yeah, they had learned how to teach according to you know, states. states, <laughs> whatever, states whatever that whatever is. Whatever that means, because I certainly don't know what that means. They had the state certification is what it amounted yeah, to. Yeah. But then they had a third teacher who didn't have a, any sort of background with uh, a degree in education, but she had a master's in math. And then they asked her about that. They said, well, you didn't, you didn't actually get a degree in education. You just got your degree in math. And she just said, that's because I love math that much. I just, I love it. I am so passionate about math. I can't wait to show it to someone else. And the administration made the correct decision. They said, that matters far more to us than someone who has these degrees in education or whatever, whatever. We see you're passionate, which, you know, to me, this is the same thing. You know, uh, Borges says something about to the effect of, uh, I can't, I can't teach American literature, but I could teach you how to love American literature. And I think that's what students really want to see. And that's what they remember the most. They say the passion of that teacher and the way in which they held their subject with a tenderness, uh, moved me. And that's what I want when I seek that subject out. And that's, uh, you know, when I teach, I try to do something like that just to say, 
I'm deeply passionate about this. It moves me deeply. And I would try to communicate at least a little bit of that, that passion to them. Does, so when you're, when you're passionate, does that mean being more of yourself in the classroom in a way? Like how do you, yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> obviously you tell someone, Oh, just be more passionate. Is there any perhaps practical ways that you you've learned through both high school as well as even college, how you could live that out in a way that helped your pedagogy? Well, the first thing I would say is that I think it's very difficult to tell someone be more passionate, you know, or say that's the technique you should follow. I think that's just some people would get really nervous and say, but I'm not passionate about this. <laughs> How do I become? <laughs> I, I think it's one of those things that maybe I'm going to sound like an artist here, but e- either you're passionate about it or you're not. And if you're not, then try your best not to do that thing. <laughs> and if you are passionate about it, then go into it more. So if they hand you a class and they say, can you teach this class? And you say, well, I don't even know what that is, or I'm not that excited about it. Try to find a connection point to what it is you are excited about because the students will see the difference and they will know the difference and they will walk into your class and they will say, I can already tell this person is not excited about this class. Should I be excited about it? Probably not. And I think what you have to do is you have to find a connection point to where you are passionate about something and go into that. And if you're in a field where that's not how you feel about what you do, then go somewhere else. And I mean, I don't say that as a, a negative, you know, to drive people away. I say it to drive people toward what it is they love because I think you feel more fulfilled when you do those things. What are some difficult aspects of teaching that you find at Loyola? I definitely, I, I'm, you know, in teaching university, I do miss, I do miss the daily interaction with students that I got at the high school level. And a lot of university professors don't even, you know, realize that if they never taught at that level. But I loved getting to know a student's life a little bit more in depth so that when I taught, I was speaking to their life in a much more direct way. And so that's just the nature of the difference between the levels of education. I do think one of the big things that we're needing to address and face is the issue of technology. I've, I mean, students, the students I have at Loyola are just seemingly addicted to their phones and to their laptops and to their pads of whatever kind of iPad or whatever. Do and you have, do you have a rule? I like? do. I do. Um, I have benefited from other teachers advice on this, but that I, I really do tell them I, I want you to take notes with a notebook and paper and pen. If you're going to use some sort of reader like a Kindle or an iPad to do the, the readings for the course, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But I really want you to remove as much technology as you can from this class. And I, I'm totally comfortable doing that. Do you, get, I, do you get pushback? No, I don't. In fact, when I ask students, if I, if I say to the class, how many of you have a fantasy of, one, uh, you know, of wishing you could be rid of all technology? of wishing you could throw yourself out the window and never see it again. I will get virtually everyone in the class to raise their hand every time. I think we have this weird relationship right now with technology where we feel like we need it. How could we live without it? And I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but I feel like we need to begin to learn to live apart from it in some ways so that we can learn to live. Uh, I think Dorothy Day would say unplugged. That's her wording. Spirituality develops and when you're unplugged from the things you thought you needed to be plugged into and you're plugged into something else. And I think that has to happen in the classroom and that has to happen in our spiritual lives. And these are seamless as they are interwoven together. So, you know, you asked a second ago about the idea of, you know, bringing yourself and your passion in the classroom. Yes, you do. And you have to bring every bit of that and look at the relationships between those things to understand how you are affecting the students and the presentation of the material. You have to be a this is part of, now I'm back to even the beginning of why I got into theology, but you have to become ever more self, self-aware, self self-critical, aware of your motives for why you're doing what you're doing. Why am I teaching? Why do I want to teach? And you have to learn to convey that to students at times. And that can be terribly awkward. But you have, to, you have to work that out, I think, you know, for yourself in order to understand why you're doing what you're doing and why you're passionate about what you're passionate about. I was looking at your CV and, like, and online, and I noticed you teach the normal intro to you know theology, intro to history of Christian theology, and then all of a sudden I see queer theology. Then I go, I wonder why he's teaching that at Loyola. And, then, and I'm very fascinated. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, it's a great question. It certainly does jump out in a way. Queer theology to me is another form of, well, another way maybe saying, another way of doing political theology in a, in a more specific context. And I think the questions that queer theologians are asking methodologically and philosophically are ones that are at the heart of how we do theology and theological reflection. So I find that using that, you know, going through queer theologians' work and, and using the language that they use uh, is incredibly helpful to get a handle at this point in history on how theology is done, you know, as a whole. And 
how did I get into this? Numerous ways. One of them was through having to reflect on different gender theorists and queer theorists and looking at their work over the years, I I became more convinced that this is a definite area that needs to be looked into, not only for me personally, which I definitely think it is, but I think also for students. And and, it's one of the signs of the times that we're having to look at. And I, when I came here, we had no one on faculty who was even interested in queer theology. And yet, yes, I had students who were constant, it seemed almost constant at first, coming up to me saying, do you know anything about how I can talk about issues of sexuality in terms of theology? And, and there was no one in our school who deals with this. So I sort of found myself becoming the you know de facto person who can talk to students about this subject and direct them toward the occasional reading. And there's more behind this. You know, I I'd met James Allison when I was at a conference uh, on Gerard's work. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, and, and had great conversations with him and had read his work before and, you know, and so I just slowly started thinking, you know, this is really is a, an area I would like to get more, in, you know, invested in in some way. And then the students kept coming to me and saying, can can I do, you know, one, uh, for example, a student just can't master students. Like, can I do a directed readings on this, you know, and you'd be the person to go to. So it was almost as if the response was becoming overwhelming. I need to organize this energy in some way. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in the process, actually, of making a more formalized course at Loyola. Now, one of the reasons that I'm content to do this is that I sort of fell into it backwards, but it's based on student need. And I feel when students have a need, you have to listen to that and address that. And I think also because I'm, because I'm in a very unique position, I'm comfortable doing this. And when I say unique position, I mean, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible to some people, but I think it's very true that if I was, uh, if I was in some various minority groups, as far as my own identity, if I was a black lesbian who was trying to teach this course, I think people would raise their eyebrows and they would say, can we do this? And that's wrong. I don't agree with that. But you would have some pushback. And I'm not saying people, I, you know, I know people I work with who would push back. I don't think so, but you never know. But because I'm a, a, I'm a white American male who's married to a woman, I have a kid, I, I, I swear it's very bizarre. I've mentioned that I teach this course to many people who I think would normally push back or raise they, eyebrows. They don't and they don't say anything. <laughs> they don't say anything. Uh, they say not one word. So I think, okay, well, if you're going to let me use this as a Trojan horse to, to, sort, to sort of <laughs> bring this forward and, and, and admit fully that, you know, hey, I, this is a deeply, a deeply divisive issue for some people. It's also a very... It's a very controversial issue, but also it's one that, you know, I have to be very careful about myself because I'm not someone who's living out ostensibly these categories Mm. in society today. Everyone, you know, students I teach, everyone, they have a right and in fact a duty to be critical of my even being interested in the subject. Mm. And I think that's incredibly true. I've had pushback on that where people have said, you know, what are you doing with this and you shouldn't be doing this. And my response is just to say, look, I'm, I'm trying my best with as much humility as I can to admit not only my own failings and understanding my own you know, presentation of myself in society, uh, but I want to try to do this because I have students who are hurting and they're really wanting to get into this, and I think it gives them life in some way. So I'll do what I can. I'll do what I can to help them along. Fantastic. What advice do you, would you give to an incoming prof- professor, maybe coming right out of graduate school, things that you would have told your, your younger self that you wish you would have known when you were starting out? Just a couple of things, and then we can, we can move on. Well, you know, the biggest thing that I hear from other doctoral students, and even when I felt this way when I was doing my, you know, my studies, is there's, a, there's many times where you're going to feel like you're a poser who doesn't, <laughs> who doesn't know what they're doing. And you want to say, when I go to these conferences and I, hear people talk about these subjects and these thinkers, I think, oh my God, I'm so far behind, you know, my readings or I don't know what I'm doing with this or that. I'm, I'm such right. a poser. But the truth of it is, I, I mean, really? And I, I think the more I get into this and I'm not in, you know, too long here, but the more I'm into it, I think every, every one of us is a poser. I mean, this is what we're doing. This is like a Tina Fey quote. We're all doing it wrong in a way. We're all trying to like yes. get our stuff together. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're all posers here. And the quicker you figure that out, then you start to realize, you know, okay, that the professor I think really knows what they're doing, who maybe doesn't know as much. Part of the reason they're not always confessing it to me is because they've moved on in their life. They've accepted the fact they're a poser or maybe they just don't think about it as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Or also they're, they're so busy and pressed for time that, you know, it just it doesn't come up so often to say to someone, I'm sorry, you're feeling insecure about this. Let's talk a little bit about what that means. I try to do that as much as I can with students uh, to help ease some of their anxiety. So maybe, uh- not take yourself so seriously in such a oh, way yeah. that you're not. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Well, that, that's another thing. Uh, I would say that to someone coming up, you know, and if I could speak to my younger self, certainly. But I would say, don't take yourself so seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously. This is not. This is not the end all be all of your existence. Right. And as someone as an outsider who is listening to your story now, be open to what students need and what they what they would honestly be interested in. You never know where that could take you. Oh yeah. Well, and this is a lesson I learned a little bit in Leuven too. You know, we have there are many doctoral students there who were writing their dissertations not on something they were totally into, but they were writing it on something that uh, you know the promoter they were working with had said, "Can you work on this project? You know, for me." And you can write about this. And say, okay, I can do that. And part of the process of saying yes to that, I think, for a lot of students is you're automatically being humbled, thinking, okay, it's not all about even what I think is important. It's about what someone else thinks is important, and I need to listen to that. This may sound very bizarre, but one of the reasons I wanted to go back to school to learn more is because I felt I had some questions I needed to answer that were being posed to me by the high school students that I taught, things that they were encountering I needed to figure a little bit more out about, you know, the nature of faith in the modern world. I, I didn't, some questions that even I didn't think were that important, but students I was teaching in high school did. And I wanted to find out more about those and, and get some better answers. And so then I went back to school. <laughs> right. So now we're going to have six questions or five to six questions that ended. These are like playful and fun. You can answer them however you want. We've already been quite light in the at the interview, but we like to see just a little bit more behind the desk and see who you are. Sure. So, favorite or least favorite liturgical song? Oh man! And you can you can choose one or the other. People will have given me favorite. Sure, you know. sure. Well, favorite. I think my favorite liturgical song is uh, "Lord of the Dance," which is what based on a, a classic English tune. Yeah, uh, I really love that song. Worst, I, I swear, if you were to drop me into a this could sound terrible. You drop me into most contemporary worship music, you know, strumming a guitar <laughs> written in the last 20 years. I'm going to, I'm going to find it all despicable. <laughs> <laughs> so I, can I pick one in particular? That's hard because they all sound the same to me. I mean, modern praise and worship is fine. Like it's yeah, just that, like, <laughs> that, that's, that's, that category would do it right there. This is, I'm going to go with this question, even though, so the Pope has said that he hasn't watched television today since like the the nineties, which, mm-hmm. but I'm going to still ask this question, even though I guess Pope Francis is not watching television these days, which, what current television show have you been watching or do you watch television? Well, I haven't had a television since the nineties, uh, but I do occasionally watch things online or, you know, Netflix. We do that. Uh, so what have I been watching? Well, I can't wait for the new oranges and new black. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Nice. Um, and we, well, we tend to watch various shows that we love. Um, what was the one? I love Call the Midwife. I think that's the most pastoral show on television. Why is that? Oh my God! That, that the nuns, the nuns who run that that convent there. Just, I mean, the Mother Superior. If you watch the way she says things, what she says, I'm reduced to tears most time I watch her talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a pastoral show, and it's in the midst of. The most ordinary of all things, you know, it's children being born. Yes. And, and I just got a great answer out of this question. So <laughs> that just made my day. What's well, a fantastic show. <laughs> I, I mean, I really like that. Um, but there's, yeah, I could name many others. I, I loved, I used to love The Sopranos. But I will say that my favorite show of all time, of all time, still, is Northern Exposure. Well, I've never even heard of it, so I'll have to check <sighs> it out. I'm sorry, that's going to make your heart. It makes my... Uh, mine is... Mine is like general Breaking Brad, I think is like the best oh, show, okay. and okay. it's a good gives you a good sense of evil. Yeah, which is yeah. like a great for that. Third thing, what profession would you have attempted or like to attempt if you didn't choose a professor? Hmm. Well, I'm always enamored by the arts. I would love the idea of painting, but I don't have a skill there. Where do I have talent that I could do something? My other favorite thing to do is cook. So maybe I would be some sort of uh-huh. a cook or. I don't know, run a cheese shop always sounds good. <laughs> There's um, a cheese shop opening up in Andersonville. That would like be fantastic. Right what, uh, what do you like to cook? Oh, all kinds of things. Um, but I don't see myself as a gourmet. That's a very big point. I see myself as, uh, you know, very much akin to the, the, the I, you know, picture some old mother in the kitchen <laughs> making okay. food for her family. That's more ah. what I do. But so I, I love making Italian food. I love making, uh, you know, Mexican food. I love making... Uh, also made dishes and we're vegetarian. So okay. I do end up making lots of creative dishes with spices. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What team are you on? Team bow tie or team necktie? Oh, 
neither, but I'd be team necktie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there should be a neither. Like, I don't want to wear a tie. I'd be team necktie. My, my brother's on team bow tie uh, as a professor, but I'm, I'm team necktie. What does your uh, brother teach? He teaches computational linguistics at Indiana University. Whoa, what a, what a family. <laughs> like, I always, Christmas must be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in very different worlds. He, uh, he, I, people will say, what is computational linguistics? And I have to say, it's, he can tell you how Google works, like, for real. <laughs> well, how do you explain systematic theology to a layperson? Like, that's, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I that's just this, like... That <laughs> Actually, that's harder. <laughs> Less applicability. I tell people like, oh yeah, I did systematics in uh, graduate school. They're like, what is that? And I just start to go in and I'm like, I can't do this that well at all. <laughs> you know, sometimes I just say, well, it's those questions that philosophy, you know, it's sort of on the border of philosophy and theology. So I ask deep questions about life. <laughs> something what is like, the meaning of like that? That's yeah. what we focus on. All right, final question. So we've we've really navigated through your entire experience in, in sense of like where you came from where you went through in, uh, you know, academia to where you are now, what should the title of your biography be? Oh, good Lord. Lost soul. No. Yes. <laughs> um, so, something along the book of disquiet. We can still pass those. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what would the title be? Good God. In search in search of a beautiful poetry. I don't know, something like that. Search, Lost search soul in search of a beautiful poetry. I think we nailed it. Maybe maybe something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I know I I love, I love ending with that question because we we had just had like a whole conversation and so like, all right, give me the title. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That works. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It looks like the weather has cleared up, so I'm not gonna be walking in the rain. So oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for doing this. Uh, no problem. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 